So over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about darkness and light. And we looked at ways that God, God uses darkness in our lives sometimes to help us find the, the, the positive things in life. We also discovered uh, last week that the reality is darkness is going to come in our lives. We can't avoid it. We can't run away from it. It just, it happens. It, it just, it is what it is sometimes. But the way we respond to darkness, that's on us. How we go through those times is something we have to choose and how we're going to decide to go through it. We can either choose to wallow in it or we can face it with a confidence that says, God, I know you're leading. I know you're in charge and I know you're going to take me through this for your greater good. Today, I want us to look at kind of an obscure, not obscure, but an odd passage. Uh, I've kind of wrestled with this all week. Uh, It's found in the Exodus story, and you're all familiar with the story of God's people being delivered from Egypt and out of bondage and all those kind of things. And you probably remember that uh, they ended up down there in Egypt because there was a famine in their land in the days of Joseph, and he had provided, through God's leading, had provided for the world, basically, at least the known world, to have food uh, through all their productive means for seven years. And now as this famine hit, God's people moved uh, to Egypt uh, to survive, but they stayed. They stayed in that place, and they ended up being there 400 years, going from a family, extended family of somewhere 70, 80 people to a nation of millions in 400 years. It's amazing how a people can produce and expand in that kind of time frame, uh, the productivity of, of humanity. Uh, but God is got them there. And, and, and we read in the passages that God, one day God, and the way he phrases it is interesting, he says, God remembered them. It wasn't that he'd forgotten who they were. It's just it was time to make a change, time to do something better. They had greater things to do in the name of Jehovah. They needed to go to the promised land. They needed to possess the land that was going to be the land where one day the Messiah would come from. They needed to get there, and God was going to move them there. But they had a situation that was kind of tough. The Egyptians really had a fear for them because they were such a large group of people, but they also had a real respect for their abilities to produce stuff because they were basically living as slaves. They were doing what they were told to do. They were making items. They were working hard. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but God says he's going to send now 10 plagues, count them, 10 plagues to convince the Egyptians it's time to let his people go. There's some pretty crazy things that happened. They had nasty plagues. They had things like locusts covering the land. Ew. Gross, right? Can you imagine? Locusts and everything. Everywhere. All the time. Yuck. They had uh, the waters, the river, turning to blood. Well, that makes it hard to get a drink, doesn't it? Nasty. But God did that. They had hailstorms that came across the land. We can relate to those around here, can't we? We have hailstorms from time to time. But the one I want us to look at is the ninth plague, and it's the plague just before the really, really bad plague where the firstborn were all taken out of the Egyptian people. It's the plague where God sent darkness, and I'm calling it a divine darkness on the land. God was going to use this as part of his process to get his people to where they needed to be. So I want us to look at the the the, the, par- the at the at the at the plague, and then I want us to really focus this morning a little bit more on the application side because I think that's where we're going to finally figure out why things like these happen in life. So let's start out in verse 21. The scripture says this: Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt and a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So what I want you to see, first of all, is something that I'm going to tell you. Our modern minds really struggle with this. We really wrestle with this concept because we think this can't be. And yet the scriptures are very clear. It's that God sent the darkness. You're going, really? Before this series of plagues began, God had told Moses there would be 10 of them total, that all of them would fall on the land before Moses' uh, adversary, the Pharaoh, would relent. We can see this as either God bringing about great destruction in the land, which it did, or a foreknowledge that his uh, actions of the leader of the land were not going to waver until he had to. God himself was at work in the moment using this darkness. I don't know if you can imagine or wrap your brain around the idea that God can use even darkness to accomplish his great purposes. Because he's the one who sends the plague on the land. He's the one that sends all the plagues on the land. So Moses lifts his hand to heaven and he says, let there be darkness. Now some scholars, more on the left side of theology, try to explain this away. They try to say, oh, it was just a massive sandstorm that moved in and nobody could see anymore. That makes sense until you look at verse 22 at the end of it. But the people of God, the people of Israel had light. So this is not just some mere natural coincidence that it came in and no one could see. No, this is God at work in the moment. God brings darkness on the people of the land. What falls on them is utter, complete darkness. Now remember, they didn't live in a time where they had artificial light like we do. They couldn't pull out their cell phone and, you know, put the light out. They couldn't do that. What they would have typically was one candle. According to scholars, they haven't even developed much reflective technology yet, so you couldn't even create a place where you could take a candle and reflect it to make it bigger. It would have been dark. Today, I wish our windows weren't so beautiful in this place. We could turn the lights off and get a feeling for the darkness. But you know the feeling, don't you? Those moments when things go wrong, when the electricity goes out, when you don't have a way to see where you're going and you stub your toe in the night and all of the things that go wrong in those moments. We can imagine this. This plague brought such darkness, they wouldn't even go outside because they couldn't see. So they would be trapped. And I think trapped is the right word. Trapped in their thoughts. Trapped in a place. You know, can you imagine having to sit in one place or stay in one room for three days and three nights? But God had sent this darkness. But notice the counterpoint of God's people not experiencing that. We're not going to dig into that, but I want you to catch that because there's something supernatural going on here. The one true God was showing him this. He is God. And you're thinking, how do we know that? Well, the gods of Egypt, that's little g, gods of Egypt, their main God was the sun God. S-U-N, not S-O-N God. They worshiped the sun. So this darkness shuts off their God. For the three days. In fact, they believed that their Pharaoh was the incarnate revelation of Ra, the sun god. And he is in the dark and can do nothing about it. So after the darkness happens and it passes, Pharaoh, in verse 
24 says, he calls for Moses. Hey, we need to talk. I got a deal for you. Imagine Vinny with the mob. I got a deal for you. You with me? He wants it his way. He says, this is my plan. Pharaoh called Moses and said, okay, go serve the Lord. Your little ones can go with you. But, and you know when you put a but in with working with God, it doesn't really work that well. He says, but only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So at the end of three days, what Pharaoh does is he partially defers to God's plan. He says, okay, God, I'll go along with up to this point. I'll be okay with it up to this place. You can do this. I'll be okay with this, but not that. Here, Pharaoh calls Moses back to resume negotiations as if he could negotiate with God. And understand that God didn't want his people to go on some vacation or a one-week holiday. He didn't have a plan for his men's group to go on a retreat where the families stay behind. He says, I'm going to deliver everybody, lock, stock, and barrel, out of bondage in Egypt. And Pharaoh says, here's what I'll let you do. Family can go. Kids can go. But leave the good stuff here. Don't take the flocks. Don't take the herds. He's thinking to himself, they'll have to come back. They'll get hungry. They'll be shortchanged. They won't have all they need. He says, I'll be in control still. So he proposes this compromise. The problem is if you lived in an agrarian society and you depended on your animals for meat and milk and supplies and you head off into the barren desert with none of that, how long do you think you'll last? Moses says, that's not God's plan for us. So Moses comes back in verse 25 and 26 and says this, but Moses says, okay, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we get there. So what he does is this, is Moses says, uh-uh, we are calling for full deliverance. Let us go. Let us all go. Moses responds very forcefully, very succinctly and says, oh no, this is what we need. All of these things have to go with us. Not one hoof will be left behind. We're not leaving any boxes in the house when we move out. It's all going with us. Can you imagine standing up to the most powerful man in the culture saying, "Uh uh-oh, this is what's going to happen. Moses had not yet received what the sacrificial system would look like. He didn't know exactly what they would need and wouldn't need. He says, therefore, God has said, take it all. We're all going to go. They wouldn't leave anything behind. Then it moves on. The story continues. Look at verse 27. Now, you want to wrap your head around something tough. Here's one. But the Lord, look what the Lord does in Pharaoh's life. Y'all with me? But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he wouldn't let them go. Now, i got to tell you, that will challenge some of our theology, won't it? We think, oh, God lets us do whatever we want to do. No, sometimes God causes things to happen in our lives and we say, I'm not going to do that. And it's not because we really thought it was a great idea. It's because God is using us as part of his grand plan to accomplish something greater. The Lord hardened it. So the Lord God caused Pharaoh's, and I call it dissidence. 
It's this conflict, this, this tension, this, this hardening of the heart. What our modern minds want to read is something like this. Well, Pharaoh decided it was his best interest to keep the people of the land of Israel. And that is absolutely true. It was in his best interest to keep a whole bunch of slaves around to take care of building all the things they needed and wanted and to take care of their lives, okay? He really could use those folks. But ultimately, it's God at work in this darkness, in this moment. It's crystal clear in the Hebrew and the English translations. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Wow, I'd love to dig into that for about two or three hours with you. This idea of God working in ways that we don't understand. It goes against our modern understanding of for the permissive will of God, the free will of people. But God causes Pharaoh to harden his heart against the release of God's own people. And get this, God is doing what he said he was going to do. He said, I'm going to send not one, not two, not three, but ten plagues on the land before he says, get out of here. God's working in this moment. And then it comes on into verse 28. You can imagine Pharaoh would have been pretty frustrated with Moses. Can you imagine this guy's come to him and said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to let us go and you're going to take everything with us as we leave. And Pharaoh said, ain't going to happen. And he has slowly been chipped away in the negotiation process to where he says, okay, take everything but this. Pharaoh finally says to him, I'm done with you. That's a modern paraphrase for you. I'm ticked. It's the way you're doing things. I'm finished with you. Get out of here. You with me? Get away from me. I hear kids say that sometimes to their parents. Get away from me. They don't want the authority that the parent has in their life. Sometimes we say that to other people in life, don't we? I don't want to hear from you. Go away. Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, here's what's going to happen to you, Moses. You're going to die. You know, this is the second time Moses has been threatened with death by a Pharaoh in his life. This is not new territory for him. This is not a new thing for him. In addition to the dissension at the notion of letting God's people leave, the the Egyptian leader adds a big hope, uh, helping of disdain. He says, I'm done with you. I'm finished. See, Pharaoh was a man who never heard no in his life. He always got what he wanted. He always did what he wanted. He could always accomplish what he wanted. Why? Because he was the leader of the land. He was the unquestioned leader of Egypt. He was considered a god. You don't tell God no, do you? Well, he just did. He believed he was always right. And he comes to a place where he says, I am just done with this Moses cat. He bugs me to no end. I am saying, get out of here. Don't come back, Jack. Don't come back. And it brings him to this final disdainful decision. And I say final because it is the choice that leads to the 10th plague, the one where children die. He doesn't know what's coming next. And he commands Moses to get out of his sight, never to come back. He didn't release him. He didn't say go. He didn't say leave. He said, get away from me. He has no use for this impudent man from the wilderness. And that brings us to verse 29 where Moses says this. Deal. That's my one word paraphrase for this verse. Deal. You won't be gone, I'll be gone. He says, as you say, I will not see your face again. 
So with the rejection and threat of, the Mo, of Pharaoh, Moses has much, uh, not much choice. He leaves. In fact, if he had stayed, he probably would have been killed right there. Wouldn't have been able to lead his, God's people out if that happened. So he had to go. He'd have been executed. So he acquiesces to the desire of the leader of the land and says, Okay, as you say, I will not see your face again. That does not mean they won't have conversation again, because they do. But he won't go to Pharaoh again. He will never set eyes on the Pharaoh again. He says, we're getting close to a final deal. The darkness of the land had not resulted in the effect of letting God's people leave, but had been instrumental in getting people ready to go. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what in the world does that have to do with struggling with darkness in life and the struggle between light and dark? Three things I want you to see about darkness. Darkness can do a couple of things in our life. I can do more than what I've listed, obviously, but these are the three that I kind of want you to focus on. Darkness can bring to us a time of contemplation. Think back to the last time you were in a difficult situation, the last time you were in a dark moment in life, when things were really tough, when things were not going well, where things were not good, where it was ugly, it was disgusting, it was mad, whatever. What did you do in that moment? Now, we could do a couple of things in those moments. We can really get upset, can't we? We can get angry at God. We can shout at God. You know, God can handle any of your shouting and arguing and complaining that you want to throw at him. He's big enough to handle it all. But it can also bring about something in our lives that is much more powerful and much more transformative. And it's the idea of stopping and thinking and contemplating life. See, the Egyptian people were cast into utter darkness for three days. Some scholars uh, want to make a big deal about the parallel between the three days and three nights and the Jesus being in the tomb and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if that really fits this. I think that's to stretch the text a little bit. I really think the focus is on the people who are there in the land. Where are they at? What are they thinking about? What are they doing? They understood some things about darkness. I mean, you do too if you stop and think about it. What do you do in a land without light and communication for three days? Can you imagine? Some of us don't have to imagine. We've gone through seasons where our power goes off for three hours and we get upset and frustrated, right? Try three days. How about when the internet quits working again? Right? We struggle. I gotta get on, I gotta see what they're posting about this and that. We struggle with that stuff. We find ourselves in these circumstances, but the possibility is maybe those times come so that we can stop and contemplate what God is doing and what God's accomplishing and where God's leading and what God has for us. I suspect that's why God allows and even sometimes sends us darkness. So don't curse the darkness. Use the darkness. Use the hard seasons to find what God has next for you. I suspect the dark times that God allows and even sends are intended to bring about about a better outcome for us. And they can be used to lead us through the darkness to see God's plan for us. I'm reminded of what the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 73 when he said this, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, and that's the part I want you to focus on, I underline it for you, but for me, it is what? Good to be near God, let me ask you this. In the dark seasons of life, has God abandoned you? Has God walked away? Is God absent? Of course he's not. He's right there with you. He's as close as a brother, a friend. 
I have made the Lord my refuge, he says, that I may tell of all your good works. God says, I want you to be near me, to walk with me, to be close to me. I think a better way to respond to hardship and darkness in life is to say, okay, God, what do you have next? What are you going to bring out of this season? What are you going to bring as a result of this darkness? Divine darkness can come in our lives from time to time, my friends, for God's purposes to be revealed to us. Sometimes it takes us on our flat on our back to finally be able to look up and see God in the moment. Second, God, uh, darkness can drive us closer to God. These are kind of related, but they kind of go off a little different tangent here. Getting close to God will aid us in understanding what's going on in our lives. It can also lead us to make changes in our approach to life. To say, okay, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to adjust? What do I need to change? What do I need to, f- to repent of? That's not a word we use much anymore. Repent. To turn away from. What do we need to turn away from so that God's presence can be closer to us, even in the dark times? I'm reminded of the words of another Psalm of David, Psalm 25. He says this, make me, <clears throat> make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your ways. Teach me your pathways. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. For you're the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. I might mean to paraphrase that. I wait for you even in the dark times. When things get hard, God wants to be there with you. I think that's a good attitude to have towards the hardship. So often when trials come, we go, okay, who's to blame? Whose fault is this? We try to look around and figure out whose problem is. Oh, it's her fault. She messed it up. Oh, it's his fault. Oh, yeah, if he hadn't spoken what he did, it would have been great. It's always somebody else's fault. Sometimes it's ours. Sometimes it's just the season that God's leading us through. It says, God, I want you to teach me how to go through this. One more thought. Darkness can also reveal greater possibilities. You know, Pharaoh was committed. You know, he was committed to be the boss. He was committed to be in charge. He was committed to to leading all of the days of his life. And he decided in his heart, he says, I'm going to lead this nation. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be the boss. Can I tell you who that sounds like? Sounds like a lot of us, doesn't it? I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to figure out what I want to do. I'm going to decide what's next. I'm going to be the one who chooses the next path and step for my life. And I'm here to tell you that, you know, as smart as all of you are and how as great as y'all are at figuring out what to do in life, you will never compare to the goodness and greatness of what God has for you. He has greater possibilities, but we've got to see them so we can go down those roads. Season of darkness, we're faced with a decision. Will I see the darkness as something that tears me down or something that builds me up? Am I going to see it as something that draws me away from God or something that drives me to God? I know this is kind of a weird message today. Hang in there with me. Will I see the darkness as tearing me down or leading me to something new and something better? I suspect the way forward is revealed when Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs. He says, in all your ways, in all your ways, do what? Acknowledge God. And he will make your path straight. 
Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't go, man, I got an answer. I'm good. I got to figure it out. But fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Because if we'll do that, here's what happens. It will be a healing to our flesh and a refreshment to our bones. God wants to do great things in your life and in my life. But listen, if without him working and leading, it didn't happen. And until we begin to understand that God doesn't just lead us through the times of life, but sometimes he brings darkness so that we can figure out how we need to really depend on him. That all begins with a relationship, doesn't it? It all begins with knowing the Lord. And I'm going to ask you this morning, have you truly met him? Have you really come to the place where you trusted him? Because that's where it starts. I know many of you in this room say, yeah, I trusted Christ years ago. Great. But there may be some here, some listening on the line today that need to make that decision. Maybe you're in the darkest moment because God's getting ready to bring you into his marvelous light. takes a step on you to do that. I want to invite you to respond as God leads you this morning. I'm going to pray here in a moment and we'll be available to counsel with you, talk with you, pray for you, pray with you after the service. Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the way you move and work in the dark times, in the hard times. Father, we pray your hand to be free in these moments as we respond to you. Father, some are thinking, I'm not in a dark time. Not today. But they come. I pray that, God, as we respond to you, you would just work in these moments. In Jesus' name.